Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, good morning, Mosaic. It's a totally different perspective. Like, just stand over here and do this. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dawn, and you typically see me over there in the corner as a worship leader, but um, it, is, uh, it is my distinct honor and pleasure today to, um, to be asked to share the word of the Lord with you. So we'll just jump right in. And again, for those of you who don't know me, something you'll figure out if we chat for more than, I don't know, five minutes. I'm a big Star Wars fan. <laughs> I Honestly, I think that and Jesus are probably like the top two reasons that Nick married me. And just, just for clarification's sake, Jesus was one. Star Wars was a very close second. And obviously, obviously, I'm too young to have seen the original trilogy in the theaters when it came out. I did, I did see the prequels in the theaters when they came out. We don't really talk about those. So my favorite Star Wars movie theater moment was the very first showing of Rogue One in 2016, right? You had a couple of people were like, that is my favorite, right? I, I see you, I see you. So those of us you know, who are Star Wars fans, we already knew going into this movie that the rebels had been told that the plans for the Death Star had been obtained at very great cost. We knew that the plans would make their way to Leia so she could send the message to Obi-Wan, letting him know that, she, that he is her only hope. And if you didn't know any of that until just now, you're under direct orders to go home, watch Star Wars episodes four, five, and six, because none of our teams are playing in the Super Bowl anyway. <laughs> Come on. What, what we didn't expect, though, when we were sitting in that theater watching Rogue One, was to see those plans delivered into the actual hands of Princess Leia, the way she looked in the 1977 movie. It was this amazing, mind-blowing, holy Star Wars moment, like, oh, you know, when we just, she turned around, and it was just, it was so, it was such a cool moment. And the next time we saw the movie, that's what we expected, right? We, we anticipated that, to see that moment when she turned around, because we knew how the story was going to go. We knew the full movie plot. And I think this is something that happens to me with Bible accounts, too. I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing Bible stories ever since I was a, a little, little kid. They're, they're familiar. I know how they end. I know what to expect in the story. And sometimes I think that actually causes me to gloss over the very real drama and tension of what's going on in this account, things that actually happen to real people. It, it even makes me gloss over how incredible God is. You know, it's, it's well, of, of course the Israelites make it to the promised land. Of, of course David's going to beat Goliath. Spoiler alert. Of course Daniel's going to survive the lion's den. Of course the Messiah comes. Of course he's resurrected from the dead. Of course, of course, of course. I know all this. But when it's my life in the story, 
when it's when it's my challenge, when it's my tension, there's nothing of course about it. It's usually more oh crap than of course. <laughs> you know, my mom gets diagnosed with cancer twice. Uh, someone tried to get me fired over an old grudge, and I worried that they would succeed. Our landlord decided to sell our condo, and we had 60 days in, in the worst real estate market in the world to find someplace else to live. Sometimes in those moments, I don't trust God to come through because I don't know how he's going to do it. Now, I'm, I'm sure, I, I hope, I hope I'm not the only one who faces this. I'm, I'm sure you're all, you know, of course people instead of oh crap people, right? Well, well, of course not. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> we all, we lose jobs. Marriages fall apart. Our friends betray us. Loved ones die and we suffer illness and injury. And in all of these moments, it is far easier to say, oh crap, than to hold on to faith that, of course, God is working in the midst of the situation. We become, I become, we all become so consumed with trying to figure out how God is going to come through in a trial or telling him how he should come through that we miss that there's a bigger picture. Now, fortunately, God, in his wisdom, knew that there would be times that we would struggle to hold on to faith in the midst of a trial. And, and he gives us an amazing example of faith to model in Abraham. As, as we've been working our way through Genesis in this recent series, we've recently been introduced to this Abraham character. And in the Bible, we see that Abraham has, has had many of his own, of course, moments with God. Plenty of times that God has proved over and over and over again that he does what he says he'll do. From calling Abraham to leave his native country so that God can turn him into a great nation and bless him, to saving Lot in Sodom, even though, as we learned last week, Lot wasn't exa exactly you know, an upstanding example of righteousness, uh, to finally blessing him with his son Isaac. In every instance, God was building Abraham piece by piece, year by year, into a man of faith. And in our passage today, we're going to see how God tested Abraham in order to reveal that faith in him. Today we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. And while you're turning there in your Bible or firing up your Bible app, let me catch you up a little bit on where we were at in Abraham's story. At the very young age of 100 years old, Abraham has finally become the father of Isaac, the son that God has been promising him. This is the son that God promises to him by name in Genesis 17, 19. He says this, God replied, Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. And sure enough, it comes through. In Genesis 21, 1 through 2, we read, The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah 
exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God said it would. A lot of us have heard this story for our entire lives. The Lord, I'm sorry, we know Sarah laughs at the angel when she told him she'll be having a son. We know she has one anyway at a time no woman should be having a kid. Can you imagine the social media feeds today if a 90-year-old woman gave birth? Yikes. But it, it finally happens. Abraham and Sarah have a son, and now the promise of a great generation can be fulfilled. And then this happens. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. 
Has someone ever given you something that you've been wanting for a really, really long time? Maybe it was your dream car. Must be a really good friend. <laughs> Maybe it was that vintage pair of Jordans or a jersey signed by your favorite football player or that seven-foot G.I. Joe aircraft carrier that Pastor Jason like circled and starred and put arrows to in the JCPenney catalog every Christmas. <laughs> now imagine that that same person who gave you this deeply treasured thing, knowing full well how much it means to you, let you enjoy it for a little bit, and then ask you to give it back. <laughs> kind of kind of makes the gut pretzel a little bit, doesn't it? Like, oh, I have waited so long for this, and it's everything I've dreamed of, and I've barely had time to enjoy it, and now you want me to just give it back to you? Uh-uh, no way. That'd be my answer. After everything else that has happened, after all the other hardships and difficulties that Abraham has gone through, now he faces what feels like the worst one yet. He's being asked to sacrifice his son, his only son, and he's got to be the one to do it. Now, let's address the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Did God actually want Abraham to perform a human sacrifice. In, in Canaan, where Abraham was living at the time, it was actually normal to perform human sacrifice. The priests of the Canaanite gods said that human sacrifice wasn't only expected, it was demanded. So does this mean that God, the one who made an unbreakable covenant with Abraham to make him the father of many nations, is, is he no better or no different than the Canaanite gods? Just to be clear, God has never, nor will he ever, demand human sacrifice. The text clearly tells us that God is testing Abraham's faith. He's not asking this because he wants Abraham to perform a human sacrifice. He's asking this as a test to reveal Abraham's faith. And we know by the end of the story that God is not like the pagan gods demanding sacrifice. He's just the opposite. Still, not only is Abraham being asked in this test to do something that contradicts what he believes of God, that he's different from these Canaanite gods, in order to, the order to sacrifice his son Isaac contradicts that earlier promise that this son is the one promised to carry on the covenant. It it kind of sounds like God is ordering Abraham to kill the very promise that God made to him. And this is a critical moment for Abraham. Does he trust the promise? Or does he trust the promiser? Trusting the promise sometimes means that in our minds, the promise comes before God. And, and we feel it becomes our job to make sure that promise comes to pass, even if that means doing something that actually goes against God. It's not our job to fulfill God's promises. I don't know about you, but that's, whew, that's a big sigh of relief. That's God's job. That's not mine. I'm not smart enough to do that. Our job, our job is to trust the promiser. From there, the promise will be taken care of. 
But Don, you don't know. You don't know how things go in my life. If I don't take care of things, nothing happens. I can't just sit here in the corner and wait for God to do something. I understand. I have that same problem myself. I get it. <laughs> Waiting on God and trusting the promiser rather than running out to see how I can fulfill the promise myself is really hard. <laughs> I personally have tried multiple times to arrange things in life so that I get the outcome I want, the, the thing or the life circumstance that I think I deserve or that I am owed. Even, even things that God has directly promised me, I've tried to wrangle my way in to be the one in control of how it all goes down. Because what if, what if I don't like how God keeps his promise to me? What if he asks me to give up the one thing that I treasure most in the world? Do I stop trusting him because I can't see how he'll keep his promise? Or do I trust him because he has already proven time after time in my life that he keeps his promises? Abraham decides to trust God because he has already proven that he keeps his promises. Listen, listen to how he responds to God. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Right away, he answers God. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. Did you hear that? Abraham leaves the very next day. Not the next week, not a month later after trying to trying every which way to wrangle, you know, what else that he could sacrifice, find a way out of it. Can I, can I put something else on the altar instead of Isaac? Maybe, maybe something that I like almost as much. Can I put my Jordans there instead of my son? Uh, his, his immediate obedience, though, it, it shows that he is choosing to trust God even when he doesn't understand God. How quick are we to respond to God when he calls us to obedience? Do we respond with trust and action? Or do we drag our feet? Now, if you were paying close attention when we read through the chapter earlier, there's something in verse 5 that might have stuck out to you. See if you catch it this time. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Did you hear it? then we will come right back. This line might not surprise us as much when we first read it, because we know how the story ends, right? We know that Abraham does not end up having to actually sacrifice Isaac, so of course, it almost doesn't register that he says, hey guys, hang out here, we will be right back. Not I. We. Now, Again, we read the story. We know it's going to happen. But Abraham doesn't. He doesn't have a Bible open next to him. He doesn't know the whole thing is a test. 
We got the spoiler alert at the beginning of the story. Abraham, all he has is a promise to hold on to, that Isaac would carry on the line of blessing and covenant. And Abraham has evidence in his own life and past that God has kept his promises over and over and over again. Abraham doesn't know how God is going to fulfill his promise. But he trusts God because he has already proven that he keeps his promises and is therefore trustworthy. So God must be asking him to do this for a reason. Now, of course, again, we read the story. We know how the sacrifice turns out. Just as Abraham is about to plunge the knife into his son's heart, God stops him and provides a substitute for the sacrifice. Again, what in the world would have made him so willing to do this insane thing. Did he, did he believe that God would raise Isaac from the dead? Potentially. There wasn't any precedent for that at the time, but it's a possibility. We, have, we really have no way of knowing how Abraham believed God would provide. We can only see through every single action taken that he does believe God will provide. And why is that? Because he had proof after proof, after proof in his own life that God keeps his promises. And surely enough, God repeats and emphasizes his promise to fulfill Abraham's line through Isaac. Listen again to what the angel of God says to Abraham after he sacrifices the ram. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants all nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. But what about when God allows the knife to fall? What about those times we look into the thicket and there is no ram? We've all had the experience of feeling disappointed or let down by God. We've had prayers we felt were not answered. The job was still lost. The friend still betrayed. The spouse still left. Death and illness still linger. We trusted him for something we thought he promised, but it didn't work out the way we hoped. Is the problem with the promise or the promiser? In order to understand that, we need to know what is God's ultimate promise? It's a promise of salvation, of reuniting humanity with him. To those, to those at Calvary, watching Jesus hang on the cross. That must have felt like a broken promise, an, an unanswered prayer about what this Messiah was, was supposed to do, right? He was supposed to free them from Rome and he's dying a criminal's death. But instead, every single moment, including the wicked bent on carrying out their own will to kill Jesus, actually was fulfilling God's will and promise for salvation. 
Life is still painful because there's sin in the world. But nothing can wreck God's sovereign purpose to bring us to salvation and restoration with him. This is the hope that we have in Christ, even when life doesn't go the way we expect it to or the way we hope it will. In fact, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is an incredible parallel and foreshadowing of God's ultimate promise fulfillment in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Both Isaac and Jesus were the beloved only sons of their fathers. Both offered themselves willingly. Both carried the wood up the hill of their sacrifice. Both were delivered from death on the third day. At the start of sin and death, God promised in Genesis 3 that the seed and offspring of woman would crush the head of Satan. From there, there are more than 500 verses in the Bible that directly refer to a Messiah. God's promised ultimate redemption through the Messiah, his son, was not a secret buried in a dark corner. His promise is a repeated revelation throughout the entire Old Testament. And guess what? Every single one of those promises came true in Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He would be resurrected from the grave. And that, that's just a handful of them. There's many, many more. If I put them all on a slide, we'd be here all morning. If God keeps his promises when it comes to the death and resurrection of the one he holds most dear, his own beloved son, how could he be anything but trustworthy? I know it's still easier to try to make the promise happen myself than trust the promiser. But our striving gets us nowhere. It just keeps us busy and keeps us focused on everything except the fact that God has always, always kept his promises. And we have the ultimate promise from the ultimate promise keeper. We have the promise of salvation, a hope in Christ that even when our stories don't go the way we think they should, that it's all part of a bigger picture, working out to his glory because of what Christ did on the cross. But there are people out there who don't have that hope. When their credits roll, that's it. There's nothing else. Part of our call as followers of Jesus is to be part of the story and share salvation, that ultimate promise of God, with others. After his resurrection, Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. Catch that? It's a promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us through everything. And in Acts 1.8, he continues that promise. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the 
the earth. Sharing Christ with others, especially in this current world, it can be intimidating. We might not feel like we have the right words, or it might be scary to just put that out there, not knowing how it's going to be received. But we have his promise that as part of his call to us to share his hope with the world and disciple others, he is with us. And we know that God's record of promise keeping, it's perfect. And because of that, we can trust him in and with all things. Imagine, just imagine what could happen if the next time we're presented with an opportunity to share the gospel, we trusted God's promise to be with us. How many more people might experience the hope of Christ? What if, what if, what if this week we commit to taking hold of his assurance that he is with us always, carrying out the Great Commission, and bringing other people into the saving knowledge of what comes next in their story because of God's ultimate promise. There is comfort. There's comfort in knowing how a story works out. (laughs) Whether that's a Star Wars movie or a recounting in the Bible, we all want to know how the story works out in our own life, especially when we're facing hard choices or difficult situations. I can't even tell you how many times I've looked at Nick and said, I wish God would just text me and tell me what happens. (laughs) Ask him, he'll tell you it's true. I'll tell you what, guess what? This book, it is page after page after page of proof that God keeps his promises. All of them, including the ultimate promise of salvation. And spoiler alert, guess what, guys, in the end? He wins. We don't have to worry about how God will keep his promises. We can lean on the fact that God has proven over and over and over again that he does keep his promises. And that means that he is trustworthy no matter what circumstances we are facing. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.